Undeveloped Freight Listening Together in the Playhouse It has not been an easy year. Perhaps they never are. Perhaps they never can be. But without any risk of exaggeration or hyperbole, this one, 2020, the year of COVID-19, the year of the virus, has been particularly horrid. And, during play years, as now, as formerly, the playhouses, of course, are shut. Personally, too, it's been tricky. For on Friday the 13th of March, as it turned out, the last day of live learning in the conservatoire, the final Friday that the pubs were still open in old London town, on that Friday, I resigned. After eleven busy years, from my post as a voice coach and theatre director at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. I will not dwell on the reasons for that decision here, but it was not, let us say, either an easy or a happy one. So here I sit, at home, unemployed, unemployable, amidst a global pandemic with, at last, A little time to muse upon this excellent question. Why the theatre? So why? Indeed, why? And this is not, after all, either a meaningless or an easy question, for I have a little painful admission to make. A confession, if you will. Phew. Here goes. Here goes. You see... Despite an entire professional career spent making theatre, spent acting in plays, spent directing them, and especially in recent years spent training other deluded souls to try to act in them at posh-sounding institutions with familiar names at the Lambda and the Rada and the Bada and the blah blah blah. Just big buildings in the end, of course, despite their carefully maintained brandings. Just buildings in our cities with large rooms in them. Rooms where experienced people converse with talented people in an attempt to help them learn potentially unlearnable things. Despite the fact, indeed, that all of the most meaningful relationships in my life, my dearest colleagues, my friends, my lovers, my wife and my children... All of them, all come specifically and directly from the activities of making theatre. And this is not to mention my slender income and precarious self-esteem. And please don't get me started on the fortunes and hours I've lavished on watching plays, or all of the books I've nearly read, the endless courses I've taken, the master's degree I pursued from the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. Despite all of that, you see, I'm not always entirely sure that I even actually really like the theatre. I certainly don't like its ludicrous expense for something so frequently so shockingly mediocre. Its predictability, the wearyingly compulsory agreed aesthetics of the biz, the drone, the bit where we got the movement director in, the wump at the end. Its risible snobberies and its institutionalised cruelties, there's no shortage of tyrants and no shortage of fools. Finally, more than anything else, perhaps, I do not like its tiresome trendiness. Oh, how I dread the endless dramas about lockdown to come, 
the dystopian meditations upon pestilence and plague we'll all have to sit through together, like that terrible decade when every play simply had to have a waterboarding. And, frankly, to be really, really honest, beyond not really liking the theatre, sometimes, on a bad day, usually furiously disappointed and tipsy outside a grand royal national something or another, I recall these lines from a scattering, Christopher Reed's memorial to his wife, the actor Lucinda Gain. The theatre is a big ramshackle, blindly trundling machine. With bits falling off it, it clatters through the generations more wasteful of lives than a losing army. And I even positively despise it. So, perhaps, in these unusual days of theatrical darkness, in this, the first time ever in my fifty-one years anyhow, that we can't all just breezily roll into whichever town we're close to and catch that new thing at the whatchamacallit that everyone says is really rather good, or scan the reviews for a clever, classy show to impress somebody cool on a date, or, alternatively, to set off, swatty and solo, to see that play we've always been curious about. An obscure Rattigan, an early coward, a difficult Afro-Ben, the furtive and nerdy pursuits of a covert fan of the canon. In this absence, perhaps, this question, why the theatre, is particularly askable. Because now, without it, we can conduct a unique experiment. We can find out, precisely, and honestly, what it is, if anything, that we're missing. One thing we're most definitely not missing in our dreary lockdowns is entertainment, diversions, stimulation, even of the highest brow kind. For, quite apart from the venerable pursuits of reading and watching DVDs, as long as the electricity keeps flowing and the internet holds out, we have near-infinite resources of fine movies and TV to watch as well as audiobooks and podcasts and radio shows and archived recordings of all sorts of performances from all time and all around the globe to consume, all linked up for us by our thousands and thousands of virtual friends. A vast collection, filtered algorithmically for our delectation. And there really is some wonderful stuff. The theatre alone is astonishing. Ariane Minushkin's Molière, Brooks Beckett from the Theatre des Bouffes du Nord, a different Schauerburner production every evening, Karma Ginka's wonderful, metaphysical Black Monk. We can fly to Epidavros and watch Nikos Karathanos' production of The Birds by Aristophanes, or be astonished by the radical accomplishment of the Red Torch Theatre's signed Three Sisters in Novosibirsk. Cripes! a magnificently curated theatrical season you could only have actually witnessed in the flesh if you'd been infinitely leisured and rich as crisis, available and free, or at least cheapish, into that living room you now hardly ever leave. Blow wind, come rack, let the damn plague run its course. I've got my Amazon Prime and my Digital Theatre Plus. I've got it covered. So, Again, what exactly are we missing? Oh, and here's a thing for you. 
Given all of these resources of home entertainment, combined with the invariable expense and frequent terribleness of live theatre, why was it that on that Friday the 13th, 2020 I mentioned earlier, in England at least, the last normalish day, the day that I huffed out of Lambda, a day when 250 people lost their lives to the virus in Italy, why was it that early on the morning of that day, my wife Elizabeth, our eldest son Charlie and I, collectively reached the conclusion, via an admittedly tense but still just about civil family conference, that it was, on balance, worth the risk for Charlie to travel up to London by train and by tube, to sit, surrounded by 1,126 people, more or less, for seven hours in the Olivier Auditorium of the National Theatre, watching Robert Lepage's admittedly superb Seven Streams of the River Otter. Why did we, even ever so slightly, gamble with our firstborn's health on this treacherously unreliable activity of theatre-going? Why were we so irresponsible? Well, I think the answer, or at least an answer, could be found by watching the streaming of one of those productions I mentioned earlier. If you've been on top of your viewing game during the crisis of 2020, you might have noticed the availability of the Schauerbühner's Richard III, free to stream on April the 3rd, a production that Charlie and I have been fortunate enough to watch on its opening night at the Barbican in London in the much happier days of February 2017. Although widely acclaimed, especially for Lars Edinger's mesmerising turn as the megalomaniacal Richard, some critics, notably Michael Billington of The Guardian, had criticised the director, Thomas Ostermeyer, for failing to explore the contemporary political resonances of Shakespeare's play. Billington, in his review, went as far as to describe the production as culpably evasive for ignoring these possibilities, at a time when the far right is on the move throughout Western and Central Europe. A response which astonished me reading the papers over coffee and muffins the morning after watching it, because, for me at least, Ostermeyer's production contained the single most politically provocative moment I'd ever witnessed in a playhouse, exquisitely realised through a sublimely played ludic conceit by the Schauerbohner's skilful ensemble. Not at all the beginner's meta-theatre for the under-twelves that settled into the globe many years ago and increasingly bedevils the RSC. Little more, let's face it, than the relentless pursuit of the cheap laugh. About halfway through the evening, an increasingly erratic and frustrated Richard Stroke Edinger seemed to lose control of himself during a banquet scene and lurched off-script attacking the actor playing Buckingham by forcing food into his face and then smearing it all over his suit. Both Richard's conduct and the wider company's confused reaction to this violation suggested at the very least an erratic improvisation gone a bit wrong, or maybe even some kind of diva-ish breakdown. Edinger then flipped out of German and taunted the terrified Buckingham by seeming to coin the not-quite-plausible English phrase you look like shit. Have you eaten pussy yet today? Richard Edinger, apparently delighted with himself, repeated the phrase several times, turning it over in his mouth, testing it and tasting it, 
before looking to instigate an escalation of effect by spinning out to the auditorium and, via a chilling display of pantomimic capering, sought to enlist the support of the 1,158 or so audience members by drilling us into a chorus, yelling, You look like shit, have you eaten pussy yet today, back at the Wobegon Buckingham. It was all very confusing. And it seemed to me that, as well as forcing something of a metaphor for the cruelty of the 20th century into the tastefully safe space of the Barbican Theatre, the company were, brilliantly, exploring this nastiness via a quintessentially Shakespearean irony. Because we in the audience weren't quite sure if this was an actor pretending to be a character behaving madly, or a mad person getting away with pretending to be an actor. Where were the boundaries? What was happening? Was it just shtick? Naughty fun for grown-ups? Or Augusto Boal's Forum Theatre masquerading unvirtuously as meta-misbehaviour? And, as someone called out in a subsequent performance, why is no one telling him to fuck off? Some groups and individuals joined in, and some didn't. You were forced to make a choice, and Edinger took his time. I've read about it since. It was contrived, crafted, an agreed space in the play for this game to be played, a clever exploration indeed of the cruelty of power and our willing and culpable complicity in its operation. For me, it was riveting and shocking and exciting and funny and sexy and transgressive and offensive. Listening, I felt acutely and uncomfortably aware of my teenage son sitting next to me, sonically marooned amongst these tastefully well-educated metropolitan types, many of whom were gleefully chanting this weird and problematic phrase back at the stage. So here we had a uniquely theatrical, viscerally powerful, exciting passage of skillfully crafted dramatic art. Bravo. Thank you, Berlin and I wouldn't dare to think that watching that passage of the play will have made me a better person. But it did make me feel something deeply, and it made me think about cruelty and violence and anger and power and comedy. And I think I understood something that night that I didn't quite understand before, and I don't think I'll ever forget it. And of course, of course... It just doesn't work in anything like the same way when you watch it in your house on the telly. It just doesn't explode. You can see the workings of the choice, you can think about it dramaturgically, consider the mise-en-scene, agree or disagree with the conceit, contest its misogyny. But that's it. You can only understand it. Merely read it. And the why of this failure of theatre to really translate into other media is complex. It's to do with atmosphere, I guess. Synchronised heartbeats, perhaps. The nowness of live theatre. But partly, too, and for me, most crucially, it's because of the sheer unmediated physicality of the behaviour of sound in a playhouse. The physiology of how voice and listening interact, their intimacy and immediacy. The surprisingly folksy chain of subglottic pressure, adducting skins and compressed air composing the complex sound signal, bouncing out from the voice of the performer to thrum through the auditorium, 
before finding its way into the ear itself, into us, inside of us. And once it's within us, without wishing to spend too much time back in Speech Science 101, we can marvel at the delicate transformation of this complex wave back into perceived speech. First caught and communicated via the vibrations of the tympanic membrane, the perfectly named eardrum, then transmitted onward down a chain of three tiny vibrating auditory ossicles, amplified in its journey before being handed through the oval window. Such a beautiful name by the last of the ossicles, the stapes, and transmuted from the trembling of bone into ripples, pulsating through the spiralling sealed pools of lymph contained in our cochlea. In the Barbican that night, 2,317 paired portable puddles of the inner ear, all vibrated stereophonically and synchronously in complex resonant sympathy to the actor's voice and thoughts, before finally... The ripples slosh against the organ of corti, where this oscillation in the endolymph fires up the auditory nerve to stimulate the temporal lobe, which, finally, concludes the process by decoding language out of neurological signals from Edinger's brain to my brain with a delay, given the speed of sound and the size of the Barbican theatre, of, at most, one-seventeenth of a second. So... When Richard insults Buckingham, it's not happening over there. It's happening right here, inside of us. We're physically complicit in the making of its meaning, in real time, in a shared space. And you can't turn away or turn it off even when you disagree, even when it's rubbish. You can't unfriend it. It's already happened. And this intense, an uniquely theatrical exchange of sound and meaning between an actual ear and a real mouth can strike us within the unit of a single word, a single syllable, even sometimes within a single sound. Like the time I caught the detail of King Lear pathetically kissing the forehead of his dead Cordelia, the tiniest kiss, heard all the way up in the gods, in the cheapest of the cheap seats a sound which in measurable intensity would be something like a million times quieter than the screams and yells which accompanied the blinding of Gloucester earlier in the evening. And this collision between the audience and the actor, by the way, can shock and excite in far less curated ways than in my example of the shower bonus carefully constructed coup de théâtre. The impact of a word can really surprise you. As Emily Dickinson articulates in her poem of the unknowableness of the effect of what we say to each other. Could mortal lip divine the undeveloped freight of a delivered syllable? It would crumble with the weight. I first understood this, first really got it, as an actor in Dublin in 1996. I was playing Leslie the captured English soldier, in a production of Brendan Behan's The Hostage in the Abbey Theatre, one of my first professional gigs. Behan's play explores the trajectory of a political kidnapping through the rough grammar of the music hall. 
The published version captures the processes of Joan Littlewood's theatre workshop at Stratford East, where the play was first devised and performed in 1958. So it's more of a record of a devising process than a traditional text per se. And, because of that, there have always been various versions of the script, as well as an English translation of Orngil, Bean's original Irish-language one-act hostage play, to work from in revivals. Rehearsing a play about the Troubles in Ireland's National Theatre that winter had been an intense experience especially given how a 17-month ceasefire negotiated between the British government and the IRA had been coming under increasing strain during the previous year, as parliamentary by-elections reduced John Major's tiny majority and Ulster Unionist influence seemed to grow at Westminster. It shattered, spectacularly, on the 9th of February during the first week of our rehearsal period with the detonation of a huge 1,400-kilogram bomb in Canary Wharf. The mood in Ireland was one of fury. A once-in-a-generation piece had been obliterated by a combination of Tory incompetence and loyalist Machiavellianism. In Act Two of The Hostage, Leslie, the conscripted soldier, and Theresa, a country girl skivvying in the brothel where he's imprisoned, are forming the sweet bonds of friendship and attraction that sit antithetically to violence and hatred within the play's dialectic. They flirt, and find themselves rehearsing some of the key arguments of the play. And when Theresa points out that the reason for the armed Republican struggle is the presence of British armed forces on Irish soil, Leslie quips back, And what about the Irish in London? Thousands of them. Nobody's doing anything to them. We just let them drink their way through it. Bean is flagging up and satirising the stereotypical anti-Irishness of the English working class. The line is provocative and might raise a giggle or a snarl from an attentive audience. But in the Abbey archive, I'd found another version of the scene containing a darker, more aggressive line for Leslie. Rather than drink their way through it, Someone, Bean, Littlewood, Alfred Lynch, who originated the role of Leslie, had suggested, we just let them bomb their way through it. An edgier, more hibernophobic line from an author who had himself served time in an English borstal for attempting to bomb the Liverpool docks at the age of 16. Excited by my discovery, I suggested to the director that maybe we could try it sharpening the bite of our production and bringing something of the mood of the current moment into the theatre. He'd thought for a moment and then said a firm no. Our show previewed and opened, and the run was going fine. The reviews were grand. The houses were okay. It was, in other words, the kind of mildly disappointing experience that characterises a life in commercial mainstream theatre. Meanwhile, the IRA bombing campaign continued in London. Then one night, I think it was the night after the bombing of the Earl's Court Road, and completely to my surprise, the director asked me to try the line, the alternative line, the line with bomb in it. So I did. One word, from drink to bomb, a single syllable lasting a fraction of a second. What happened next is hard to articulate. There was a, for fuck's sake, from the back of the stalls. 
Someone else left the theatre and a row broke out backstage, followed by raised voices in the foyer. A minor kerfuffle then. But it wasn't that. It was the feeling of the air being sucked out of a communal space. The way the atmosphere changed instantly. The feeling in the playhouse of an acceleration of hundreds of hearts. An entire audience changing their minds about you. Turning on you. All of this freighted by a single syllable. And what was it that the audience were so angry about? National guilt? The stupidity and ignorance of the British? The oppression of 800 years? All of it was there in that moment. I came off stage that night shaking. The rest of the cast seemed angry with me, although no one actually said anything. I had the nauseating feeling that I'd done something terribly wrong. We changed the line back the following night. Whatever it had done had been too unpredictable, too chaotic. But from that moment on, I owned a certain knowledge about the potential power of language in the theatre, and this kept me going. It's my answer to the question. Why the theatre? That's why. I have other stories I'd love to tell you, but there's no time to tell them here. So, when the rain stops falling, and the plague passes, put on a show. I'll give everything I have to be there with you, sitting in the dark, listening.